1: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, time for another big round of stress tests for the nation's big banks. I'm Tom Busby in New
2: York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where we're looking ahead to the gathering of many of the world's top central bankers in the Portuguese hilltop town of Sintra. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. What
3: will it take to revive the animal spirits in China?
4: I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where the end of the second fundraising quarter is rapidly approaching for presidential candidates.
5: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, SiriusXM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg
1: Business App. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby and we begin today's program with the nation's banks still emerging from this spring's banking crisis and the stress test they're about to face this week. And joining us now to talk about those tests and all things bank related, Bloomberg Wall Street reporter Shanali Basik. Now, Shanali, let's start by walking us through the history of these tests, when they started, how they started and why they're being done.
6: The really important thing about these tests is that they started in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, and they were set up as a way for bank regulators to really test the health of the financial system. And these are the big, globally systemic financial institutions, the big banks that had to take bailout money in the wake of the financial crisis, as well as a broader array of financial institutions, uh, you know, mid sized banks, really up to uh, $250 billion in assets or more that have to go through these tests to make sure that the financial system is safe and sound.
1: And how is the financial system?
6: <laughs> well, it's an interesting year, isn't it? Because a lot of these tests were really formulated before the failure of three major banks in the United States, three major midsize banks in the United States. Now, all of those banks were in and around that $250 billion threshold and ended up failing for reasons that were much different than what was in the stress tests themselves. So it shows you that while the stress tests have really done a lot to make sure that most of the banking system is saving money, putting capital aside to cover any potential losses in the future, it's also showing you that there are certain things that the Federal Reserve has not tested for and just has not really seen as an issue until more recently.
1: So the question is, with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic, what has the Fed learned?
6: Well, a few things, and it's not just the Fed. The market has also learned that everyone thought that deposits were very, very sticky, that when people put money in the bank that they would keep it there. And for a lot of history, that was true, wasn't it? You went to your local bank, you put in your savings, you left it there and you didn't think about it. But in the age of mobile banking, We saw tens of billions of dollars leave these banks essentially overnight when people were worried about the strength of their banks. And that is one problem. The other problem is how these banks have managed their interest rate risk. In most of these Fed stress test scenarios, you see interest rates eventually decline. And the reason is in a time of severe stress, you would see the Federal Reserve lower interest rates to meet a market shock, not raise interest rates. Whereas in the last year, we have seen a tremendous rise in interest rates that has impacted these banks and has caused some severe stresses on the banking system.
1: And that was not accounted for in these tests before, to go up 5% in 15 months.
6: Exactly. And in many cases, just the opposite. There's only a few scenarios in which the Fed has tested interest rates in this manner. And it is something that has been seen of something of a blind spot for regulators.
1: Now, uh, that means clearly that the Fed has to make these tests a little tougher.
6: Well, this is interesting. There's a lot of debate around this. This year's tests... Are tougher. You have GDP falling in a scenario that is much more severe than what you saw last year. In the scenario that the Fed is posing to the banks, you're also seeing home prices fall pretty significantly. So there are certain things about this stress test that are showing you that there uh, there could be you know severe stresses that these banks undergo, and the question is whether they are able to make it through those stresses. But like I said, there's other stresses like those deposit runs that are not included in these stress tests. And so there's a lot of question about whether they're testing all the right things and all the right banks.
1: And one thing that came up this year, an exploratory market shock they're testing for. What? So, that sounds frightening.
6: <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't it? Well, remember, back in 2008, it was really the big trading desks that had ran into trouble. And now what the firms are doing here is they're trying to test the big investment banks in a harder way. Now, these are not tests that are likely going to, um, you know, slap them with much higher rules after coming out of this exploratory market shock it is a brand new test and it is not part of kind of the core things that the Fed is testing for. But what the implication is here is that the Fed will most likely start to test these trading desks more and more in the future. Remember, this is all happening in the backdrop of Fed Chair Powell speaking to Congress and telling them that there will be bigger rules, much bigger rules for the biggest banks. He wants to raise capital requirements by maybe 20% for the eight biggest banks. And he wants to potentially test those trading desks more rigorously in the future. But those are all things that will come up for public comment, and it won't really be implemented at a greater scale for years to come.
1: Well, those capital requirements, as you said, he said, Chairman Powell, the eight biggest banks, mm-hmm. but there are 23 banks being tested. So some of them are not going to face that same kind of scrutiny, but. Will they also have to see their capital requirements rise?
6: It's not even just that they may potentially see capital requirements rise. It's also that they're is likely to be a greater set of banks in the future. If you remember, I was talking about that $250 billion limit when it came to the asset base that the Fed was testing for, $250 billion and above. Now the Fed is saying that they want to really lower that bar to about $100 billion. And so that will include a much wider array of banks. Now let's put that into the context. That's not happening this year. But if you look at what Mike Mayo is saying, for example, the outcome that you'll see here is that the moving parts here you'll see the the GSIBs, these big globally systemic financial institutions, those eight big banks, they're likely to come out of this just fine and keep buybacks pretty robust and really reward Wall Street bank investors. They'll be just fine, essentially. But it's the regional banks that Mike Mayo believes may need to hold off on buybacks given the degree of uncertainty about the rules. And he's saying that and not expecting these banks to fail, but he is expecting the rules to disproportionately impact the mid-sized banks that are currently in the process and regulators are worried and frankly a lot of frankly more republican lawmakers are very worried that putting more rules on these smaller and mid-sized banks will really constrain those banks in the future to do things like buybacks as well as lend more into the economy.
1: And will they have to issue more debt, some of these banks?
6: That's the other thing. And the worry from Wall Street then becomes, if the banks have to issue more debt, then does their cost of capital start to rise? Do they have to pay more to bring more money in? It, it's a complicated equation here.
1: Now, another thing that, that, that has changed greatly is mobile banking.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you, uh, you hinted before that you know when First Republic, within minutes mm-hmm. of, of the troubles there, one quarter of their deposits Mm -hmm. uh, on people's phones was Mm -hmm. just removed, gone. I I mean, has the Fed kept up with that evolution in banking, do you think?
6: It's interesting that you ask that too, because we were just talking about how the stress test doesn't really account for, you know, mass deposit flight. And, you know, you don't really often see it either. I mean, even some of the banks that Investors were worried about, yes, they saw a deposit flight, but that deposit flight was not necessarily this deposit flight that came from scares of bank runs. You know, I'll use Jim Bianco, who is a research analyst that we speak to a lot here at Bloomberg. Uh, He always called it a deposit walk not a deposit run, because when interest rates started rising, people did start pulling their money from banks and putting it into higher yielding places like money market funds. And so you did see deposits slowly, slowly moving, internet or no internet, right? They were moving because of the economics. But then you saw that crash with Silicon Valley Bank with that sharp deposit flight. And so you you can argue it in a lot of ways. Probably the internet made it a lot faster and easier to move your money. But- also, people would have moved their money, anyways.
1: Yeah, they would have, and and uh, would have, could have, should have. But so much of this really is backward looking, though, isn't it?
6: Yeah, it it is very backward looking, and I think that is always the big fear when it comes to uh, these stress tests. But I I will say this: while people do argue about the scope and the scale of the stress tests. Even bankers themselves believe that the stress tests overall were a net positive to the banking system because at the end of the day, what it did was it forced a more prudent way to operate. And it forced both regulators and the banks to step back and take a look at everything they're doing at all points in time um, across many different scenarios in a systematic way. You will have some of the biggest bankers in the world tell you they're happy they're there. They just don't need more of it.
1: <laughs> and and- – going into this week, is there a good feeling among the biggest banks?
6: There's a frustration knowing that these rules are going to get more stringent, especially because there are other rules that are also changing for the banks, like the FDIC, for example. Since the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation had lost so much money with these bank failures, there's a sense that... These banks are going to have to pay more already to the Deposit Insurance Fund, particularly the biggest banks that will have to pay the most.
1: Thank you very much, Bloomberg Wall Street reporter Shanali Basik. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, here comes that big annual forum of European Central Bankers. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, China's economy hits a rough patch. But first, central bankers from all around the world will be heading to the Portuguese town of Sintra in the coming days for the annual forum hosted by the European Central Bank. It's happening at a time when policymakers are contemplating an end to their monetary tightening. For
2: more, Let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe banker Stephen Carroll. Tom, it's a fairy tale setting for one of the most important global gatherings of central bankers. The town of Sintra in the hilltops outside Lisbon is dotted with brightly colored palaces worthy of a Disney film. The discussions, though, will be much more grounded as the world's top monetary policymakers discuss their efforts to bring down inflation. For more on this, I'm joined by our economics and ECB reporter, Jana Rando, uh, who's in Frankfurt, ahead of the trip uh, to Portugal. Jana, great to have you with us. Before we get to the very serious matters at hand, and I don't want to play them down, but I do want to talk a little bit about Sintra as a place. Can you describe it for us? I've tried my best. How would you describe Sintra? Oh, it's
7: gorgeous! Um, I I had the uh, the pleasure of spending a couple of uh, days there last year, and um, let me tell you, it's definitely worth the trip. Uh, you have whimsical palaces, you have extravagant villas, you have ruins of a Moorish castle that go way back to the eighth, ninth, or tenth century. I forgot, um, but but it's just it's colorful, it's mysterious, um, and and you know there is uh, uh, there is a reason why the Portuguese kings chose chose that place as their summer retreat and um you know while we're at it i have to say what's also royal about sintra is the view from cabo da roca which is the western uh, most point of mainland europe it's not far from sintra it's definitely worth going and and you know um it's it's certainly a nice view so um for those of you ha- who are those of our listeners who haven't who haven't gone
2: it's worth it.
7: ecb yeah. retreat or not um you know um you should go you should put it on your list
2: it's always a good time to visit Sintra. Anyway, the theme of this year's ECB Forum taking place in Sintra, is Macroeconomic Stabilisation in a Volatile Inflation Environment. It's quite a mouthful. What are the big themes that you'll be watching out for?
7: Yeah, it's certainly an agenda that, that's featuring many of the challenges uh, central banks face today. So um, they have some really interesting papers they'll be discussing on, for example, inflation expectations in an economy facing supply shocks, obviously, um, you know, very, very, very relevant uh today uh, on the cost of inflation, on the future size of central bank balance sheets, on the optimal mix uh, between monetary and fiscal policy. There will be discussions on energy markets, on um, lessons learned from forecasting mistakes. So all of that highly, highly relevant uh, to the policy debate now. And of course, the highlight of of each Sintra um, uh, conference is the policy panel um, that features um, the governor of the Bank of England, um, the Fed chair, the governor of the Bank of Japan, and of course the ECB president. And, uh, Christine Lagarde.
2: Yeah, of course, it's, it's a really fascinating moment to be discussing monetary policy as well, as we have global central banks shifting in many cases towards the end of their hiking cycle, or at least that's the current expectations. The ECB, of course, given that they're the hosts out in force at the, this event, are the, the hawks and the doves getting an equal share of time, do you think, here?
7: Well, we've certainly invited all of them to join us on TV for interviews, so it's it's up to them. And they're welcome Um, on radio as well. (laughs) Well, I I will make sure to tell them. Um, but but jokes aside, um, all of the ECB board members uh, will make an appearance uh, during the um, panel discussions and during the the conference. And of course, lots of governing council members will be uh, in attendance. Uh, they are known to ask questions during the sessions, so we will hear from from a fair share of them. And I'm certainly looking forward to uh, catching up with them, uh, you know, uh, one by one, uh, and in big groups. It's 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 a nice atmosphere there. You really get to to spend some time with them.
2: And get insights, of course, into those all-important decisions coming up for central banks. The ECB's next meeting is in July. What's the current thinking about where the ECB is on its rate-tightening path?
7: Well certainly uh, inflation uh is, is not going uh in, in the direction that the ECB wants to see it go, or at least not fast enough. Uh, they did revise up their inflation outlook um at the last meeting and that's certainly not uh you know what you want to do uh in, in this situation. So um they have been uh very determined in, in, in suggesting or, or even almost pre announcing that rates will, will rise again in July, um that at least one more rate hike is coming. We are hearing from a lot of governing council members now about September whether that, you know, should be on the table, whether that should already be considered sort of a done deal. Um so so it's gonna be very interesting to see um where where they see monetary policy heading but also where um you know how they see the the Monetary tightening in place uh, already um, since since last July, actually, how that is reaching the economy, and um, you know we've we've seen some transmission problems because of labour market strength and and uh, a shortage of workers there. Um, so they're really dealing with a the situation they they haven't they haven't seen before. There is no textbook example of how to deal with the challenges we're facing, and that's interesting. So it's about where rates are heading, and and but also how. How you, um, how you go beyond, uh, you know, once you're reached a peak, how, how policy pans out after that.
2: Yeah, Yana, stay with us. I want to get, bring us in some of the market's perspective on this too. And a conversation that we had on Bloomberg Radio in the past few days with Sonia Martin, who's Chief FX Drashtis at DZ Bank. We asked her about, about her expectations for euro dollar, given this shifting point in central bank policies on both sides of the Atlantic.
8: I think the markets have overreacted to the ECB a little bit. I mean, yes, they were hawkish, but so was the Fed, to be honest. If anything, on the, you know, just really short term, I think there's a risk that we're going to see Eurodollar trading lower again. I think the big turnaround has to come from from the fundamentals. You know, when the U.S. goes into a recession and Eurozone performs better, which is likely to happen as we move into the autumn, I think that's going to be the point where Eurodollar has the potential to really go above 110 and move higher to support. And one fifteen is sort of our target. I don't think the timing is right yet.
2: Wh- which of the major central banks do you think is most at risk of a policy mistake then, given that delicate uh, position therein that you outlined?
8: Well, there's always things because you' who who's to judge whether it was a mistake or not? because we will never know what the alternative was. um there there's certainly a risk overshooting. I think definitely when we're looking at the bank segment right now, I think ultimately the mistake or not will be determined by the ability of the central banks to then reverse course once the timing is right. I mean, you may have hiked once too many times that's not really going to hurt the economy massively um i think to get the timing right to change course when inflation will still be kind of persistently high that's going to be the real the real skill and that's
2: that's not going to happen until next year, I think. So that's Sonia Martin from DZ Bank. Uh, Yana Randow is still with us. Yana, you mentioned there are some of the special guests at this ECB event in Cintra. Jerome Powell from the Fed, Kazuo Ueda from the Bank of Japan, Andrew Bailey from the Bank of England. How much do these central bankers share the same challenges as the ECB?
7: When you look at the Fed at the, in the US, most of their problems are demand-driven. So we had massive fiscal stimulus following the pandemic a lot of uh, a lot of what what we see in the US is really demand driven so in that sense there is something the Fed can do about uh about it with rate increases when you look at the Bank of England on the other hand um their um their problems have a lot to do with supply and one factor uh that that plays into the cards here is brexit of course um massive impact on the labor market but also on trade um so there uh, the bank of england really is in a tough position and and um you know with rates potentially having to go up all the way to 6%, there was certainly a big risk that, that it would crush the economy. So it's going to be very, very interesting to have all these central bankers on one podium, having them respond and discuss. So I'm certainly looking forward to that.
2: Yeah, some fascinating conversations ahead. Thank you to Bloomberg's ECB reporter, Jana Arandau, and Jan will be bringing us coverage of the Sintra ECB Forum uh, on Bloomberg Radio as well. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6 a.m. in London and 1 a.m. on Wall Street. Tom?
1: Thank you, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look at China's economy and prospects for stimulus amid some key economic data. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
5: Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, to London, DAB Digital Radio, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg
1: Daybreak Weekend. Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. You know all the talk about how China's economy would come roaring back post-pandemic after all the COVID shutdowns eased. Well, the economy did pick up, but not nearly by as much as some expected. And now China is in the spotlight in the coming week with some key economic data as economic growth falters. Now, for more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague Doug Krisner. Tom, will be getting China's PMIs in the coming week, and the early indicators
3: are not particularly great. In the last reading, the official PMI came in at 48.8. China's overall economic activity has now reclaimed its pre-COVID levels, but it doesn't seem all that sustainable.
9: Investors are getting a steady stream of more promises of stimulus from policymakers, but the effects so far appear
3: negligible. Consumption is sluggish and exports have been declining. Joining us now to try to chart a path forward for the economy is David Chu from Bloomberg Economics. David, thanks very much for joining us in our studios here in Hong Kong. Have policymakers done enough to kind of light the fire under the economy?
10: No, not yet. What I can say is that, um, yes, they are considering some uh, stimulus package, and uh, the market is also expecting for that. But uh, I have to say that there is a risk that the, that the market may have overpriced in the potential uh, stimulus. I mean, maybe investors are too much uh, optimistic about the size of the package.
9: David, do you have a sense of why the government is being so careful here so as not to
10: roll out a, a strong stimulus package? I think uh, two main reasons. One is that the policy rooms are now more limited than before. Because if you look at the uh, monetary policy, uh, if you look at the base rate or the policy rates, and uh, and if you look at the deficit uh, in the in the fiscal side, you would see that, you know, um, the room is uh, smaller than before. The second thing is that uh, I think the government is still concerned about the high debt level in China, because uh, according to the BIS, uh, now China's debt to GDP ratio is almost 300 percent. So it's a a huge amount of debt so that the government may concern that uh, aggressive stimulus may lead to uh, more accumulation of the debt.
3: In the past few days, we heard from even Wang Huning, who is the number four official in the Communist Party, really stressing how they needed to boost consumption. Would they consider, do you think, handing out cash to citizens? That's something that they have avoided in the past, but it has worked elsewhere, including right here in Hong Kong.
10: Well, I think this is uh, something ambiguous because, uh, yes, people has been, have been calling about voucher or uh, cash uh, to citizens, just like what is happening in Hong Kong. But there is also some concern that maybe this money, uh, if it is allocated to, uh, to people, people may not spend it at all. They may save it in bank so that it won't be transferred into uh, consumption. And uh, another uh, view is that uh, because China relies on government investment for more than two decades, so that it is a belief that um, the government can make investment directly that uh, may form uh Demand. So in the view of some uh, government officials, this can be a more effective way to lift up the, uh, the economy or in the, in the demand side, uh, which is uh, more directly than uh, giving money to, to, to people.
9: We know that the ailing property market, the housing market has been a very big problem. There may have been some disappointment in the last week when the five-year loan prime rate was only reduced by 10 basis points. Some economists were looking for a larger cut as a way of kind of engendering a little bit more enthusiasm for housing. It's interesting to me that Bloomberg Economics is saying that new home prices could gradually recover this year by the second half of the year. How is this going to happen? How are consumers in China going to begin to
10: Feel differently about the property market. Well, I think I agree that uh, ten bips cut in the rate may not play a lot to the housing market. What we were expecting was that the government can do something uh, more in the monetary side, so that to give more confidence to uh, to people. Uh, not only because of the rate cut uh, itself, but also because of the. The confidence that can be lifted by such kind of uh, easing, or by the uh, signal effect. Uh, so, based on this, we think that ten beeps cut is just at the start of the whole procedure in the monetary side, and uh, we are now uh, looking for a more cut uh, in both um, the policy rates and also the triple R in the next uh, half of the year. So, uh, we we are you can see that we are expecting more but on the other hand i have to say that um it may be a very optimistic view that the housing prices can recover uh in the next half of this of this year because we what we see in the market is that the the confidence is Still fragile, and uh, uh, the, the the sentiment uh, in the housing uh, in the household sector is still weak, so mm-hmm. that we don't see any silver bullet to boost the confidence uh, in the short term.
3: So so I wonder if if consumption is still weak, uh, it may be that some people are are not even confident in uh, the stability of their jobs. I know you've been looking at search engine data just as a means of kind of trying to understand how people feel about their jobs, and what are you seeing?
10: Yeah, I totally agree with that, Um, because uh, we also look at the uh, search engine data uh, to see how many people were searching for the word unemployment or loose drop uh the level is still similar as the uh, in the pandemic area it tells us that even china reopened from the pandemic people are still as cautious as before so uh, it is about forty percent higher than the pre-pandemic level. Wow. It means that it yeah. means that you know the concern in the in the labor market is still very strong.
9: Yeah, and I think the latest reading on youth unemployment is uh, twenty point eight percent at a time when uh, universities in China are graduating at about a million students a year. This is particularly difficult, I would imagine, where the young
10: people are concerned. Yes, I think that is also a signal, uh, especially uh, for the weak confidence in the private sector. Uh, because usually the young people are hired, used to be hired by private sector, by the servicing sector. Uh, but now they have a high uh, jobless ratio. It means that uh, these sectors, uh, they are slowing. And uh, uh, the private entrepreneurs, they are not willing to, uh, to invest to, to expand their uh, business. So that is a concern.
3: If there was one thing, David, that you think they could do to, to try to uh, stoke a renewal in confidence, uh, because that's obviously, I mean, both businesses and consumers are lacking confidence. What might it be?
10: Well, uh, people have been talking about uh, giving money directly to people. Another view, I think, is that uh, the government can consider to reduce the, the cost of a hiring. Uh, because uh, you know that China has the, the cost for uh, for uh, for a company to hire each person, you know uh, two thousand three thousand a month. So I mean the cost the, the cost uh, giving to the government in the mm-hmm. forms of uh, pension fund, uh, social security fund, or tax. So uh, I think the government can do something to reduce this part of cost, mm-hmm. so that to make the uh, the, the, the employer more active. to to hire new new employees.
9: It's going to be very interesting to see where we go from here, not just in more fiscal stimulus, but uh, more stimulus on the monetary side. David, thank you so much for being with us. David Chu from Bloomberg Economics. I'm Doug Krisner, along with Brian Curtis in Hong Kong, and you can catch us weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street.
1: Tom? Thank you, Brian and Doug. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, The fundraising race to be nominee for U.S. President is intensifying as November 2024 gets closer. Lots of activity right now as we bump up against the end of the quarter. I'm Tom Busby and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. The fundraising scramble is on for those hoping to be elected president in 2024. For more let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines.
4: Yeah Tom the dash for cash is on in a major way as it's the last week of June that's coming up upon us, and that means the end of the second fundraising quarter. So candidates are rushing to get their campaign coffers as full as possible before that June 30th day hits. Here to talk more about this with us is Bloomberg's national politics reporter Nancy Cook. So Nancy, just talk to us about why it's important to, you know, raise all this money into the end of the quarter anyway. Why do quarterly numbers matter?
11: Well, so basically, we have not seen fundraising numbers yet for many of these candidates. Um, You know, President Joe Biden really just jumped into the election this spring. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis really just jumped in. And so the quarterly um, Federal Election Commission fundraising reports, which are due by July 15th, really will be the first snapshot we have of, both the democratic field and the republican field and how people are doing at raising money both from like big donors like billionaires but also you know people who give like $10 or $20
4: so do we have an idea of what these filings ultimately may look like? Who is being successful at raising money right now?
11: So I would say that all the candidates are out there doing a ton of fundraising right now. Joe Biden just did a swing through California. Um, Ron DeSantis just did a swing through California. He did a swing through Texas. And so like everybody's going to places where there are big money, like New York, California, Texas, like the big the big money places. I would say I, I spoke with a source um who told me that we can expect the Biden numbers to be good, not like President Obama re-election good, but that he is, you know, having a fine time raising money. I think that there is a sense that a lot of Democrats feel sort of lukewarm uh, about the idea of a second Biden term. However, they are very motivated by the threat of another uh, term for for former President Donald Trump. And I think donors really are motivated to give to keep Donald Trump out of out of office. Um, with Trump, what I will be looking for is, you know, he ha- does not have a lot of support among the donor class. A lot of billionaires don't want to get involved with him again. They think he's a chaotic president. They don't like his rhetoric. They think he's decisive. But he still has a ton of support among small dollar people who send in like 10 or 20 dollars. And we've really seen his fundraising surge after these last two indictments. Um, and then finally, the, the third sort of major candidate, the second runner up so far in the <laughs> GOP um, primary, Ron DeSantis, you know, he uh, I, I think it remains to be seen whether he can master retail politics like meeting and greeting voters in Iowa, New Hampshire. But he is not having problems raising money. You know, he raised um, over eight million dollars in the first 24 hours after he announced his campaign. What I will be looking for specifically with that report is: is he is he raising money both from rich people and from everyday people, or is it concentrated in one or the other? Because um, if he is not raising money from the smallest dollar donors, that means there's just a lack of grassroots support, and that will really hurt him in those early primary states.
4: So this could kind of help us as journalists, but also the American people, understand who's really gaining traction uh, among the American population. And I wonder, too, how this filters in as we look ahead. Yes, uh, the end of the quarter, this coming week on June 30th, and you have to file by July 15th. but. Looking ahead to August 23rd and the first GOP primary debate, ultimately, how do how do the kinds of donation numbers and that idea factor into that? Considering you need to have uh, a certain number of donors to even make the debate stage,
11: you do. And so I, I think the threshold is 40,000 um, donors. And so you have to have just a certain amount of support to enter the debate. So that's a key criteria. But the other thing is is that really to last through the fall, you're going to have a certain amount of money. Mm. There are so many Republican Republicans in the field now. It is such a wide uh, GOP field. Bloomberg's national politics
4: reporter Nancy Cook. Thank you so much. And Tom, we'll send it back to you.
1: Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg one newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.